You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored number 69. We're coming off of the State of the Union address, Obama's uh, sort of midterm, mid-second term State of the Union, and between gloating about his re-election and declaring that America's economy is making a comeback, finally. Um, Obama made uh, some overtures towards things that have virtually no chance of passing in Congress. But for what it's (laughs) worth, um, here's a quick rundown. One of the biggest initiatives that he announced was a plan to give uh, six weeks of paid parental leave to all federal employees. And that is supposed to sort of set a template for a reform that he would like to see for the entire workforce nationwide. And he is encouraging Congress to pass a bill that would provide funding for states to develop their own programs to offer paid leave to parents. This is a pretty roundabout way of doing things, and of course it requires both the buy-in of Congress as well as the states. Um, So if that's not hard enough to get and it miraculously passes, then there will still be the obstacle of how and whether um, states will actually implement any of these programs. Nonetheless, Obama is using the same sort of approach that you saw earlier with his efforts to raise the minimum wage. We saw last year that he started again with federal employees raising their minimum wage from $7.25 to $10.10 an hour, hoping that that would then incentivize um, employers and other lawmakers and uh, states to uh, follow suit. So, um, as we noted before, this has very little chance of passing in Congress. Nonetheless, um, it was a heartening move, and many advocacy groups praised it, along with the paid uh, parental leave um, effort. He is also announcing plans to promote paid sick days. He would like to give federal workers a chance to earn seven days of paid sick days uh, per year. And all of this is sort of mirroring some earlier uh, legislation that has been pending in Congress for, well, since at least 2013, um, but has gone absolutely nowhere. But just as a reminder, in 2008, more than one half of employed parents lacked access to at least five paid sick days to take care of a sick child. And that access got worse, uh, the lower parents earned. So um, this puts us effectively dead last in the so-called wealthy industrialized world. Um, But nonetheless, Congress still doesn't do anything. Congress do something? Why would they do that? Um, This weekend was also Martin Luther King Day weekend, and uh, as the Black Lives Matter actions have continued across the country, blocking highways, waking up mayors, and disrupting brunches from coast to coast, this weekend the movement organized around the framework of Reclaim MLK, turning what has become a rather staid holiday celebrating the nice liberals version of Dr. King back into a day of action, protest, and demands for justice for black people. Reclaim MLK actions also incorporated a labor component, fitting as no doubt belabored listeners all know that Dr. King was assassinated while supporting the Memphis, Tennessee sanitation workers. Walmart workers and their supporters held actions, and in what is kind of one of the less discussed areas of increased worker action recently, there were a bunch of marches and protests by airport workers. Um, that included some sit-ins and civil disobedience on King's birthday. The largest of those was here in New York at LaGuardia Airport, where over 1,000 airport workers and their supporters, including several elected officials, marched at LaGuardia, blocking traffic for a while by sitting in on a street bridge before police cleared the area. The workers are subcontracted service workers at this airport and others who make around $9 an hour to do the various jobs that keep the airport running, from cleaning planes to handling baggage to passenger security. This is the second year in a row that these airport workers have held actions on MLK Weekend, demanding better wages, benefits, and the right to join a union. Here in New York, it is SEIU 32BJ, the building service workers local that has been organizing with the airport workers. Uh, said one airport security officer, Martin Luther King said, it is a crime for people who live in this rich nation to receive starvation wages. I work hard to help make sure the airport runs smoothly every day, but I still make poverty wages. He works for the subcontractor Prime Flight. Workers in New Jersey, Baltimore, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Philadelphia, and Boston all rallied for the same cause. 
So we got a rather regressive ruling on home care workers uh, in, from the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., from Judge Richard Leon. It was the second of two rulings, essentially vacating a new rule from the Labor Department. Um, it's actually been in the making since October 2013, and it would finally give minimum wage and overtime rights to companionship workers, also known as home care workers, and it would basically undo a 40-year-old exemption in the Fair Labor Standards Act um, that would grant them the same uh, protections as other waged labor. Judge Richard Leon ruled that the Labor Department's rule was inconsistent with the intent of Congress when they had amended the Fair Labor Standards Act in the 1970s. And a prior ruling in December partially vacated the rule, um, saying that it could not mandate that third-party employers provide those in-home service workers with uh, the same protections uh, in the Fair Labor Standards Act as, say, domestic workers and others get. In this ruling, the judge ruled that the Labor Department had overreached by defining companionship too narrowly, basically saying that the original Fair Labor Standards Act never meant to exclude what we currently see as home care services from um, the protections afforded to other workers. Um, Judge Leon basically said that um, the original exemption had been specifically written with concern in mind for the ability of constituents to pay for in-home care on a regular basis, thereby essentially arguing that home care workers do important work, but it is so important that we can't pay them a living wage. Currently, 21 states and the District of Columbia currently mandate some overtime or minimum wages for home care workers, but there exists no official federal protection on this order. Meanwhile, there have been some efforts to unionize home care workers in other states, which we've reported on, um, but the battle for some sort of national standard uh, continues. And with any luck, the ongoing campaign that's been led by groups like Caring Across Generations will continue to push for amendments on the state level. Other than that, though, it looks like for now, the Labor Department has once again been thwarted in its effort to provide the very basic minimum level of protection to these workers who do crucial work. Vermont was supposed to be the state that showed us all how to achieve real universal health care. In 2011, the state passed a law, Act 48, that required the state to create a universal publicly financed health care system by 2017. Organizers with the Vermont Workers Center initiated Healthcare as a Human Right campaign, which has since expanded to several other states, pushed for this law, but late this December, Governor Peter Shumlin, who won re-election in a squeaker, announced that he would no longer be moving forward with the plan, despite the fact that his own research shows it would increase net incomes for 9 out of 10 Vermonters. The people of Vermont, though, fought for their health care plan and are not letting it go easily. They arrived at the State House for the governor's State of the State speech last week, bearing a list of demands and interrupted his speech with a colorful rally and sit-in that saw 29 health care supporters arrested. Friend of the podcast, Jonathan Levitt, tweeted, It's starting to feel like the Wisconsin Capitol in here. Jonathan also had the presence of mind to bring an audio recorder, so here, thanks to Jonathan, are the protesters reading their list of demands during the occupation. Commits to the Vermont Legislature to schedule a public hearing to schedule a public hearing on Governor Shumlin's finance proposal by January 29th. On Governor Shumlin's finance proposal by January 29th. We are staying. We are staying until the speaker. Until the speaker. Healthcare is a human right campaign is coming up with its own proposal for funding, which they will release soon. We will keep you posted on what happens next in Vermont and around the country in the fight for single payer healthcare. So for generations, the classic American family has revolved around work and marriage, these two key institutions in American middle class life. 
And the last half of the 20th century has been marked by an extraordinary transition, the rise and fall of the so-called nuclear family. Contrary to stereotypes, though, the leave-it-to-beaver ideal family structure of the suburban house with 2.5 kids and a stay-at-home mom was never really the norm for a lot of working people, as we know. But it has been sort of the emblem of middle-class prosperity. Um, Sociologist Andrew Cherlin recently wrote a book called Labor's Love Lost, depicting how marriage rates have declined Um, over the past few generations and what this indicates about other social changes that have been taking place simultaneously. Um, He talks about marriage as kind of social barometer for other trends that are going on in the workplace and in the economy more broadly. And he also challenges the traditional notion of marriage as this intrinsic social good. On the other hand, he does talk about what the decline in marriage rates indicates about crisis facing many working American families. We caught up with Andrew Cherlin. He is the Johns Hopkins University Benjamin H. Griswold III Professor of Public Policy in the Department of Sociology, and his book is out um, on Russell Sage. In your book, Labor's Love Lost, you explain this so-called decline of marriage as an institution, and you discuss this as Um, a social issue as well as a symptom of these broader social problems. Can you sort of pinpoint why you decided to focus on on marriage rates per se and and how that might offer a window into other changes that were going on uh, during the time that you observed this trend? What motivates me the most is having stable care environments for kids. I think it's very important for their, their development. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean your parents have to be married, but it is good if your parents or parent give you some kind of stability. Um, if this were Europe, where we have cohabiting relationships that last for three or four decades and the substitute for, for, for marriage, I wouldn't be as concerned about the decline of, of marriage. But in the U.S. peculiarly, our living together relationships that are substituting for marriage are very short. We either break up or we get married quickly. And so the people who aren't marrying, which is predominantly people without college degrees, have short-term relationships on and off involving kids, creating a great deal of, of churning and instability in kids' lives. And that's what motivates me. So do we need to absolutely have everybody married? No, certainly we don't. Is marriage the only way you can have a good relationship? No, it's not. But here in the U.S., it happens to be the way most people do stable relationships. And you actually discuss in your book why it's significant that marriage in some ways is a key way to uh, provide a, a stable, um, you know, nurturing environment for a family. In a way, our social institutions are kind of uh, built around marriage so that often, you know, in order to provide a, a child with those things that that they should be entitled to regardless, right, of the marital status of their parents, Um, marriage becomes, in a way, a a necessity. Um, Can you talk about why that is and and what that says about how fair our society is towards uh, families of different types? When the the tax code was really kind of set up for families after World War II, it was set up in a way that privileges the two-parent single-earner family, a breadwinner, homemaker family. That is to say, I make a lot of money and my wife doesn't, uh, we're better off being married than if we weren't, okay? But if two people who both make a lot of money are together as a couple, they're kind of better off not being married. So the tax the, the, the tax structure is set up to favor a particular kind of marriage that's not nearly as common as now as it used to be. And in general, there's an assumption that most people will be married. That assumption was workable 50, 60 years ago. But it's not anymore. We have to get beyond it. We have to try to figure out how to help families in a variety of situations so that we can um, have a, a family policy that meets the 21st century reality of American families. So our, our, uh, our tax code really has yet to catch up with uh, the currents of history, as it were, and then ends up producing, you know, reproducing, uh, you know, <laughs> a historical artifact that doesn't actually need to be. So when you talk about the sort of male breadwinner family, the traditional nuclear family where the father works and the mother stays at home, that to many people today sounds um, pretty antiquated. Can you talk about the male breadwinner family as a historic sort of artifact rather than a, uh, a natural condition or, or some sort of 
uh, state that every family uh, should naturally aspire towards and, and how our work places and our, and our uh, labor force is structured around that. Sure. You know, in the mid-20th century, especially in the 50s and early 60s, right after World War II, that was the heyday of American capitalism. U.S. firms dominated the world, and firms could pay high wages and still have a lot of profits. And so they did. And they did so in a very gendered way. That is to say, it was men who got those jobs and not women. I'm not nostalgic for those days. Uh, there was a lot to be said for the 1950s family in a way, but it also missed a lot. I think of my own mother who raised me during the 1950s and didn't work and was kind of a frustrated 1950s mother who, had she been born a generation later, might have been a lawyer. So there were some negatives and some positives of the 1950s family and the working class family that was kind of the epitome of it. I don't want to go back there. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's not in, in tune with the times. The problem then is not that the 1950s family has declined. It would have collapsed of its own weight sooner or later. The problem is that for people without college degrees, the so-called working class, nothing stipple has replaced it. What can they do instead? What kinds of jobs can they take that will support a relation, long-lasting relationship? Those are the issues that we have to think about. And many conservatives, I think, have uh, dominated the public debate on marriage as a social policy issue. And so it's interesting to see this kind of taken up from, from the left. But um, uh, what, do you, what do you think about the way um, conservative discourse has sort of uh, spun the decline in marriage rates as um, you know, a platform for prescribing certain types of policies. I'm thinking specifically of welfare reform in the mid-1990s, um, as well as this constant drumbeat of uh, sort of blaming poor parents for their own condition and specifically focusing, um, uh, you know, often inaccurately <laughs> on, on um, you know, uh, on single mothers. What conservatives have said about the decline in marriage is that it's a cultural phenomenon. It's a decline in values. It's a decline in industriousness of young men. You know, it's, it's dependency on the government. It has nothing to do with the economy. That line is really, I think, falling out of favor, including among many conservatives who now for the first time are willing to say, you know what, the, the disappearance of jobs in the middle of the labor market might have something to do with the decline of marriage. So conservatives are for the first time willing to uh, hear what liberals have been saying, which is that marriage has declined not merely because our values about what constitutes a proper family have declined, have changed rather, but marriage has declined because it, it's supported by the labor market. And for a generation of high school educated young adults, that support has now disappeared. And, but I think liberals shouldn't be anti-marriage. Okay? Marriage is not the be-all and end-all of family life. I don't want to just support marriages. But seeing as marriage is the way most Americans do st stable family lives and seeing as most Americans still want to do it that way, I think liberals ought to be able to say, let's support marriage as an important part, but not the entirety, of our family policy. And if we do that, we might be able to help a lot of families um, it, it cope with these difficulties. And I think, you know, uh, on sort of the flip side of that, um, some of the way the left has discussed marriage perhaps has been more, as you say, as a matter of culture, but they would argue it's a, it, it signals a positive development maybe in culture, that women are becoming more independent, that they're asserting their rights, um, that, you know, they're, they're better able to uh, care for children on their own. Um, what do you think might be lacking from, um, I guess, the, the liberal or the progressive discourse on marriage as it exists today? Okay, here's what I think might be lacking. No doubt, as you just said, women are more economically independent than they used to be. And no doubt some women are using that economic independence to have children on their own, um, to have alternative kinds of families, which is fine. But I think a lot of women, especially college-educated women, are using that economic independence to attract a guy who wants a woman who has some earning power and to marry. What we've seen, which is so surprising really to me, is that over the last few decades, marriage has remained strong and maybe even been stronger among college-educated young adults. Now, why is that? Is it because college-educated people are reactionaries and don't understand all the alternatives of family life? I don't think so. It's because most Americans would still like to marry and the college-educated people are the winners in our globalized economy. And women with good earning power are marrying men with good earning power, and they're forming stable family lives. And you know what? The divorce rate for these college-educated marriages has gone way down. So it's not the case that 
women's economic independence has led to a, de a decline in marriage everywhere. But what we've seen is a huge gap between college-educated young adults who are combining two good jobs into economic security for a marriage and the high school-educated young adults who are not marrying, don't think they can swing a marriage and are cohabiting instead. So let's not be anti-marriage. Let's realize that it's a workable solution that many people still prefer. Um, but let's make it part. That's just part, but an important part of our liberal agenda. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, obviously, at some point, you're going to have to meet people where they are when uh, <laughs> when when you're making public policy. And um, and as you said yourself, you know, marriage remains an important part of life well, for, for yeah. a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not advocating that our, our public policy focus totally on marriage. You know, the, the government spent $100 million or so uh, in the 2000s on two huge randomized trials to see if marriage promotion worked. That is to say, they took a group of young adults who would like to marry and gave him all kinds of marriage courses and so forth, um, and it didn't. <laughs> uh, we can't right. do it very well. Um, some people might argue that we shouldn't promote marriage, but the fact is whether or not we should, we don't do that very well. So let's not focus on promoting marriage, but let's provide assistance to many kinds of families, such as many of the measures that President Obama mentioned in his State of the Union address. Um, sick right. leave, um, paid leave, family leave, um, uh, there, there are many proposals that would help married couple, but also help single parents, and those are ones that we should be supporting. Right, right. And by that same token, I mean, alongside this discussion on uh, parental leave, I mean, there, there is, um, uh, in addition to, you know, maybe supporting uh, two-parent uh, households, it would also help uh, men be, be, you know, sort of evolve out of their, uh, you know, conventional roles as breadwinners and, and become, um, you know, more supportive fathers. And I, think, at home. and I think that's what's happening among the college educated. It's certainly not a 50-50 division of household responsibilities for the college educated, but it's much more egalitarian than it was a few decades ago, as those couples, you know, both contribute to the income and both contribute to the, to the, to the households. I also so think we should recognize that single parents can do a very good job and that providing them with some resources will make it easier for them to do a good job. What we don't want to happen is for a single mom to say, I have to let this guy move in. I don't particularly want to, but he's willing to pay the rent for the utilities and otherwise my lights will be turned out. Okay, That's the kind of situation we want to take single moms out of by giving them some assistance so that they can preserve a kind of stable environment for their kids better than they can today. Right, right. I mean, it seems to come down to this issue of are we are we giving people the choices in life that allow them to sort of determine their own um, economic and, and also romantic futures, I guess, in right. a way. Right. And many of the of the, of the high school educated Americans actually would choose marriage, but they don't think they can make it work and they don't see anybody around them who they can make it work with. Um, so giving them some resources may allow them to be economically secure and to make unconstrained choices to, mm -hmm. you know, to do whatever they might like to do, which for some of them might be marriage, which for others might not. Right. And in terms of who you're focusing on in this study, um, a lot of the um, statistics that you cite are related to changes that you've observed among white working class men. Can yeah. you talk about that specific demographic? I mean, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, we hear it bandied about a lot in the news as sort of the, uh, you know, this uh, this voting block, right? Uh, or, or everyone's suddenly obsessed with what white working class men are doing. Um, why is that an important focus um, when we're discussing marriage? You know, especially when a lot of the discourse on marriage has been focused, frankly, on single unwed mothers who are often characterized as poor black women. Right. Well, I think for one thing, it takes the, the debate about family structure out of the context uh, of race, which may be a good thing for a little while. Um, let's, you know, let's leave aside the difficult issues of race and say that even within groups and even among the majority group, the whites, there are issues that need to be dealt with. These high school educated young white guys, they are the sons of many cases, fathers and grandfathers who worked on the assembly line for General Motors or another big firm who made good money, um, who slogged through every day on the assembly line for their families, um, and who had a kind of disciplined sense of self. I get up, I go to work every day, I do hard work, and uh, my family benefits from it. Um, those fathers and grandmothers, grandfathers made a, a life out of that. I don't know whether these young guys want to, but they can't. 
the jobs aren't there. That kind of life isn't available to them. So what are we going to do for them? And of course, for their Hispanic and African-American counterparts. How are we going to connect them up with jobs, with the rest of society? Right now they're floating, um, you know, drifting away from the middle class. So the white working class guy who's under assault now as being uh, um, uh, a couch potato and not being industrious um, needs to be connected up with the job market. How do we do that? That's a big okay. that's a big issue for us. And of course, it's not just limited to white men. It's all men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and speaking of men, um, another area in which you explore kind of the plight of many working class men is through uh, this um, this view that we have of um, uh, of black men and how they're often stereotyped and how the you know the reality does not often meet the stereotype. You talk about um, the the so-called caring self, right, as a as as a as a way of thinking about um, the evolving role of uh, 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 black men in family structures, right, um, and and how that contrasts with what you call the the disciplined sort of self right. um, uh, of of the working class that we're often associated with, you know, a very uh, masculine stereotype of what it means to be a member of the workforce. How does that work with our current stereotypes and how those need to change? The white working class husband was working hard for a small kind of nuclear family, to use a sociological term, of husband, wife, and children kind of out there by itself. And so he was trying to provide for that family. African Americans have long been involved in larger patterns of assistance among extended kids, uncles, aunts, cousins, grandmothers, grandfathers, because that's the only way they could make it. That's the only way their families could survive. And so I, I think that, that black workers have long had a bit of a different model of what work is for. It's not just for you and your wife and your kid. It's for your brother if he needs help, and then he will help you out if you need it. It's for making sure that your extended kin do well. And so there's a sense of caring and sharing among black workers, including black factory workers, when factory work was more common. That's a bit different from whites. I don't mean that whites are heartless, but whites who had it a little easier economically were better able to make that kind of stereotypical nuclear American family work. Blacks weren't. And maybe an upside of that, a silver lining, is that they're often willing to help out. And I think that that kind of masculinity that we've seen among black workers is actually more useful today uh, than the, the disciplined self kind of masculinity among the, the, the white working class guy um, who slogs to the assembly line every day and who doesn't do any homework at night. The man who's willing to share, the man who's willing to care, it seems to me is much more the 20th century man that partners need for good marriages. Right. And I guess, um, you know, as you said, perhaps one of the, the odd upsides of, of uh, being in a situation which families are forced to be resilient in that way is that it allows people to um, deal with vulnerability in ways that many perhaps uh, stereotypical white men were, were not uh, were discouraged from doing uh, in the past. I think failure was, in a sense, worse for white men when it happened because it wasn't supposed to happen to them. Uh, if a black man got fired because his his factory closed, it was just another hardship in a long series of hardships. And, and to some in some sense, perhaps black workers were able to deal with work difficulties more because they had to, because it was part of their lives. Whereas for the white worker, times are really pretty good, earnings were great, and they see slipping away a kind of life that they idealize and that for their fathers and grandfathers did work. Mm, right. And, and perhaps maybe from that kind of convergence between, you know, you have a, a traumatic uh, loss in class status on the one side and then on the other side you have generations of forced resilience. Maybe between that we can actually start to think about things in a more structural way. Right. That, you know, now, it's not anyone's fault. <laughs> yeah. Now, for, for, for decades, the factory system was kind of rigged for whites to have an easier time than blacks. That was the case at a big steel mill in Baltimore uh, near here, which at its peak was employing 30,000 people, including a number of African-Americans. But the African-Americans were really only allowed certain jobs, the, the dirtiest, uh, the hottest jobs at the plant, and they couldn't really advance. So the system was rigged until important court decisions in the 70s and 80s. But by that time, the white privilege system had gone on for so long that to white workers, it looks like discrimination to take it away. 
So what we have is this phenomenon among the white working class of, of thinking that they're the ones who are being victimized by discrimination because their, their ability to get their own sons a job at the factory is less than it used to be. What's really happened is that white privilege was rampant until the last few decades. And when white privilege is taken away, it looks to whites like they're the victims, when in fact it's just leveling the play, playing field. I think that's why whites are so resentful. Um, they had it pretty good. And part of the reason was because um, blacks were restricted in what they could do. You take that away, and it looks to whites like they're the victims, not black people. So you get this right. funny phenomenon that white people tell pollsters that they're discriminated against. I think that's what they mean. They don't, yeah. they don't realize that what was taken away was white privilege. Right, right. And, of course, um, uh, this leads to that pernicious tendency to sort of blame the other for uh, one's, uh, one's you know, loss when, in fact, it's a structural problem that everyone is experiencing at the same time, albeit in different ways. <laughs> That's right. It's much, e it's much easier to blend the problem on black families that you can see every day than on some mysterious forces like deindustrialization or automation, which can't be easily seen and can't be easily comprehended. Right, right. Um, you know, the invisible hand of capitalism. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, and, you know, that, of, of course, reminds me of, you know, on the flip side, we, we have this, the feminist discourse, which is, of course, that, um, you know, white women were entering the workforce in the post-war period at dramatic rates. And yet, you know, black women had always been working. Right. And so right. it was much less of a, you know, a jarring transition culturally for for black women to be asserting their economic independence. Right. In that black way. women have always had to be economically independent. Going back to the slave system. System. Certainly, they weren't independent, but they had to be—they they had to take care of themselves. The, the, the idea of a black housewife was never big in American culture. The whole idea of a housewife was really about white culture in the U.S. African Americans never had the luxury of the kind of single earner, two-parent family that the whites did, and also much to the good. African-American women's opportunities have expanded greatly over the last half century. used to be the case that nearly half of all African-American women were, were maids, cleaners, ironers. Just in the 1940s, it was like that. So black women have done well, in fact, in some ways better than black men, because black women have expanded into these large white-collar service jobs that, that have happened. So, so black women have always been independent. They still are. And I don't think it's as threatening to black men to have a wife who earns a decent income as it is to some white men for whom it's a, it's a negation of the way things ought to be. Right, right. After so many generations of, uh, of you know, you have families of color who are relying on some sort of communal, um, you know, economic earnings capacity, right? Um, so that, you know, the single earner is, uh, is you know, really removed culturally from where, where they are. In some ways, these, these transitions in the labor market have been easier for blacks to deal with. I don't mean to say they have an easy time, okay? And what, and, uh, but, but in a sense... Blacks are used to hardship and to coping and to extended families working together to make to make to make it. Whites had this idealized nuclear family, single earner family that was working in the 1950s and 60s when when wages were great, profits were high. As that has collapsed, there's not much else for whites to grab onto. Whereas as things have gotten a little tougher, at least African-Americans can grab onto a tradition, a long tradition of helping out across kin and family relations. Mm -hmm. And um, you briefly mentioned uh, a constituency that has long been uh, actually legally shut out of uh, marriage as an institution. You talk about um, uh, gays and lesbians being, uh, you know, sort of not being part of the marriage picture simply because they, they could never access that right, right, in the 1950s. Um, but now, of course, you see um, marriage in a way being rebranded as a civil rights issue when we're talking about marriage equality. Um, can you talk about how that's shifting the current marriage debate? I think it is re renewing the idea of marriage as an important institution. And for liberals who tend to favor a gay and lesbian marriage as well as more, more so than others, um, what we've seen is a dramatic shift in attitudes that I cannot recall seeing anything like in any social issue that I've studied over the last few decades. Uh, the, the change in the U.S. in the last 10 years of attitudes about um, gay marriage has been huge. And also what's very interesting now is information shows that in states that have had gay marriage legal for, uh, for several years, there's a huge take-up rate. 
a lot of gay and lesbian couples are getting married. Very surprising numbers. You know, just because same-sex marriage was legal didn't mean anybody had to do it. Gays and lesbians could have rejected it. In fact, they're doing it in large numbers. So what does that say? I think it speaks to the continuing importance of marriage in American culture. It's, it, it's, it's a, a goal that, that Americans want. Um, they may be reluctant to do it unless they think they can do it well. But it is out there as a way of life that's highly valued. And we've seen a startling example of that as mm -hmm. gay marriage has been legalized and has so, as so many couples have, have gotten married. Uh, it's one of the most striking social changes that we've seen in marriage in, in, in decades and decades. Right, right. And it's sort of interesting because it forces uh, many uh, conservatives into a bind, right? Uh, social conservatives, of course, are always talking about the decline of marriage. And here you have the great champions of marriage in the 21st century being people that they don't want to see married, perhaps. So. Right. So ju just like you and I and your listeners who have been, you know, been questioning whether we should support marriage, um, the, the conservatives have been questioning whether they should support same-sex marriage. Um, the liberals have been... In, in, have been backing same-sex marriage. I think, in a way, same-sex marriage has kind of legitimated the legitimated the idea of marriage among liberals. Mm, it's yeah. made marriage less of, of a solely conservative issue, yes. um, and therefore has made it easier for liberals to say, "Well, maybe marriage is a good thing for people who want to do it, and we ought to support it." Yeah, um, uh, as my colleague Sarah Jaffe, she, she noted uh, in your book, you seem to portray um, nostalgia for marriage as bound up with 1950s kind of male nostalgia, right. <laughs> you know, because that's when right. marriage was right. beneficial for be white men. Marriage was seen as a conservative institution, and to some extent it is. But boy, if you look at gay and lesbian marriages today, there's nothing traditional or conservative about them. Right, right. And I think that there have actually been some studies saying that in some ways same-sex couples have a much more egalitarian, um, you know, dynamic at home, simply, because, you know, by nature of the, the fact that there's no clear, um, you know, dominant or subordinate gender role, right? Right, right. You're going to have to figure it out as you go along where there's no clear gender um, divisions that you have to follow. I think as a, as a social scientist, studying how gay marriages evolve in this country is going to be one of the most fascinating uh, ways to understand the family in America going forward. Word. A lot of the research that you've done uh, around how marriage uh, relates to other social issues of gender equality and economic inequality mm -hmm. um, focus on uh, certain policies that are in place that form barriers to uh, to those kinds of things, and then maybe you know make marriage this kind of high stakes game that you were talking about before. Can you talk right. about policies that would do the opposite in terms of creating an environment in which people feel free to make the choices that they want to make in their personal lives and don't have to worry about that plunging them into economic despair. <laughs> sure. I think providing economic support through raising the minimum wage, through expanding the earned income tax credit, to providing basic economic support to people is a way to take the marriage debate, uh, make it more sane, because it removes the incentive to partner in marriage just to keep the lights on in your house. Um, we want to allow people to make reasoned judgments about partnerships and about marriage and not be kind of forced into them because um, of economic insecurity. I think some people are forced into cohabiting relationships because of economic security, although not many into marriage. Uh, I want a single mother to be able to uh, make a reasoned choice about whether to uh, have a partner move into her home. I don't want her to be able to, to have to do that on the basis of uh, what her the checkbook balances looks like. So I would like to see more assistance to low-income families that would allow them to make more reasoned and slower, really, decisions about marriage. I think that that would be positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that ties into one of the, you know, the, the, the one, pr one of the most salient points that we can pull from the whole failure of uh, marriage promotion as a federal program is that, um, you know, when they surveyed people, they actually found that, uh, you know, in many ways, people valued the same thing, you know, poor folks valued marriage just as much as right. rich folks did. It's just that they're waiting right. for the circumstances in their lives to come about when they felt free to make that choice. As, as one couple took, as one couple told a, a marriage promotion uh, site in Baltimore, we don't know anybody who's married in our neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, we can't see that. We don't, you know, we don't have any role models. Uh, you know, theoretically, we'd like to be married, but how do we get there? Well, if that couple wants to be married, I'd like to, them to have the ability to, to do that. 
Also, the ability not to. Both depend on a more stable environment and a more stable connection to the labor market and to public policies. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and you talk about um, education uh, tying into marriage rates and how some of the divide, the, the so-called marriage gap that you've been seeing is also, you know, both a, a class divide and an education divide. Um, can yeah. you talk about that in the context of what we're hearing now in public policy circles about making higher education more accessible? Um, do you feel like that that might have some sort of bearing on on marriage issues um, from both a social standpoint as well as maybe um, you know a, 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 an economic standpoint. Uh, I think. Education is a very important part of increasing the options and improving the security of of uh, high school educated uh, Americans. Um, the question is, do we want to stick with the American dream uh, as our policy centerpiece, the American dream that everybody ought to have a four-year college degree? Or do we want to devote some resources to training, to community colleges, to giving people um, ed educations that might um, – make them qualified for the mid-level jobs that still exist, like, say, being an x-ray te technician. So education is important. We've traditionally in the U.S. thought of education as opportunity to finish, opportunity to get that college degree. Sure, we want to make that available to more people, but I don't think that should be all of it. I think we want to devote, devote resources to community colleges and junior colleges in order to get people trained. The president wants to do that through um, making community college free for the first two years, which, which is a good idea. But I actually think it's just as important to devote resources to increasing the graduation rates of community colleges and, and allowing people to, to, to finish their programs. That's important. So education, everyone agrees, is something of an answer to the disparities we've seen. It's not clear exactly what kind of educational policy we should have. And there's a debate about whether to give up that dream that college degree ought to be the whole ball of wax. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and of course, as you know, just as marriage is not a magic bullet, education is not a magic bullet either, right? Well, th here's a thought experiment for you. Suppose, a th here's a thought experiment for you. Suppose tomorrow we could give every 20-something a four-year college degree. Would we be able to employ them all? I'm not sure we would. I think we'd have too many college grads, which tells you that education can't be the whole story, that providing greater opportunities in the labor market has to be part of this, and that also strengthening unions, strengthening the minimum wage, you know, reversing the trend where uh, an increasing share of national income is going to capital and a lower trend is lower share is going to, to labor. It tells us that some direct intervention in the labor market of the kind that President Obama and others are talking about, really is going to be necessary if we're going to deal adequately with the difficulties that high school educated young adults are having in getting their careers and families underway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to the extent that those two kind of play off of each other, you know, family structure and education levels, um, education is often such an investment uh, for in, in people's lives that, that that leads to some marriage delay in some cases, right? So. Sure, sure. For college kids who are at elite colleges such as the one I teach at, Johns Hopkins, um, you go away for four years and nobody gets married anymore by the time they leave Johns Hopkins. Um, for kids with a high school degree, education might be a bit different. You might be paying for courses yourself that you're taking at night and it might stretch out over six or seven years. So you might want to delay things. Um, while that's happening too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just to, to end with, I mean, the, this dilemma of, you know, education, marriage, all these social institutions, I mean, maybe it's time that we yeah. um, stop investing so much in one particular cultural institution as if it's just the right way and we kind of start to look right. at um, the economics of everything. Right. Let's let's improve education, but let's not stop right, there. Right. When we talk about what can be done about the, the, the dismal labor market situation of the high school grads, some days I wonder if we've just run out of work, if we've automated and sent overseas so many jobs that we just don't have enough. And I get a little depressed. But then I realize that throughout history, people have fought that, 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 that we're going to run out of work, and they're always wrong. There were the Luddites, you remember, the people who smashed the looms in the cotton factories in Britain in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. They thought that was the end of work. Well, it was the end of their jobs, but it wasn't the end of work. So I tell myself, it may look like there are not that many jobs left, but 30 years ago, who would have thought 
that we'd have so many people employed around something called the internet. None of this. So I, I say, yes, I'm somewhat sometimes a little despondent in, about the prospects for increasing the number of jobs. But then I say, history says I'm wrong. (laughs) That was Andrew Churlin, author of Labor's Love Lost and professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins University. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Arg! I wish I'd written that. And so the piece this week that I wish I had written um, actually was last week. It was called Meet the Mental Health Care Workers on the Front Lines of a Statewide Strike by Sam P.K. Collins at Think Progress. And as we've discussed before in this podcast, when healthcare workers and other caring laborers go on strike, it often has as much to do with the conditions for the, of the people that they care for as their own situation. We saw this in evidence in last week's strike of mental health care workers at 35 Kaiser Permanente locations across California. Members of the National Union of Healthcare Workers held a week-long strike to call attention to what they call negligence by Kaiser in providing for the people who buy its health care plans. Elizabeth White, a licensed clinical social worker in Los Angeles, told Collins, The public buys Kaiser's plans thinking they will get all parts of the package when, in fact, they don't. Kaiser had already been forced to pay a $4 million fine for violating the California Mental Health Parity Act, but the workers say that the company has not done anything to fix those conditions and has simply shifted resources around rather than fixing the problem. Because of the Affordable Care Act, Kaiser has nearly 400,000 new enrollees in the state, and the workers say that its lack of concern for care has tripled wait times, causing class action lawsuits, and they worry leading to patient suicides when they can't access care. Chronic understaffing in mental health care leads to more emergency room trips, more stress for workers at all levels of the chain, and, of course, those people who cannot access mental health care when they desperately need it um, can result in really, really horrific results. Um, Marsha Grilly, a local elected official who joined the workers on the picket line, recounted her story to Collins of a two-year battle with Kaiser to get her sister the care she needed after she was diagnosed with depression. Her sister committed suicide in 2012. Kaiser representatives naturally complain that the strike undermines the workers' statements of concern for their patients. The rhetoric is the same again and again and again and again and again. Caring workers are pushed to do more with less through constant cuts, even from companies like Kaiser, which has made $14 million in profit since 2009. And when they resist, their resistance is used as evidence that they don't actually care. This is an even more important story with the Affordable Care Insur- Act increasing the numbers of Americans paying for private health insurance. If companies simply embrace the windfall that the ACA gave them in form of new clients obeying the new government mandate without improving and expanding services, care will wind up getting worse for more and more people. The workers on the front lines are the ones whose voices we need to hear to ensure that patients are actually being treated rather than being simply milked for more cash. My pick for this week was called It's Been Five Years Since Haiti's Earthquake and the Redevelopment Hasn't Been About Helping Haitians. That's almost a truism by now, but it's by Nixon Boomba. He is a an advocate with the American Jewish World Service, um, acting as a consultant uh, for grassroots groups on the ground in Haiti. And Well, as the title indicates, it has been five years since the Haitian earthquake, and it seems like the world has pretty much forgotten about it by now. Um, The people themselves have obviously not forgotten because they're still struggling to recover. The donations have dried up. The only thing that Haitians seem to have in abundance these days is just utter despair and um, complete poverty. Tens of thousands of people are still effectively displaced. Meanwhile, developers are busy building industrial parks to bring in foreign-owned factories that don't even provide a basic living wage for people. Housing is completely lacking, and yet free trade zones are doing a thriving business, um, essentially operating the same sweatshops that were around before the quake. Um, Bill Clinton has been one of the figureheads in the so-called Haiti recovery movement, and um, most of that money has basically slowed to a trickle by now, um, despite all of the big claims that were made in the initial days after the earthquake about rebuilding back Haiti to something better than it was before. Uh, Boomba offers a sobering perspective of what happens when a nation so heavily dependent on aid ends up getting abandoned by its international donors. 
He writes, the Haitian government is using its scarce resources to invest furiously in tourism, the mining of gold and other natural resources, massive industrial construction projects, and the exportation of our, nat- of our agricultural products. There are reasonable arguments for each of these strategies. After all, stimulating Haiti's economy could increase the quality of life for people at all economic levels. But it takes a little digging into recent investments to find stories of criminal abuses of power that have provoked outrage from Haitian citizens whose land is being taken to make room for these projects without their consent. There is not only a profound neglect of Haiti at work, but also a really pernicious ethical dilemma at play here in the politics of so-called development. Haiti, well before the quake, was a victim of so-called economic restructuring policies imposed by the IMF. And it seems that after the earthquake, the situation has only worsened. Haiti is now facing not only an economic crisis, but an outright political crisis. Um, The president is now poised to end up ruling by decree, essentially, because the um, the government there has effectively collapsed. Meanwhile, developers are plowing into a pristine island to make way for a massive tourist development, um, even though the island itself um, has been, you know, tended to peacefully and sustainably by its local residents and is completely unsuitable for the level of development that is uh, about to come in. Um, Meanwhile, the people who have protested peacefully against that development have been subject to government suppression and arrest. And in the backdrop is the damage wrought by a massive cholera epidemic that the international health community, which is currently struggling just to deal with the Ebola crisis, has failed to um, address for the past year or so. Um, So all this shows how the long-term issues fold into the immediate crisis, and both both are sadly neglected as the world's donor class moves on to other disasters. So it goes. That concludes our episode for this week. As always, you can send us your stories of going on strike as a healthcare worker or otherwise, having a sit-in, having a protest, whether your relationship has collapsed due to economic insecurity or anything else at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. And we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored. Belabored.